From the Capital Forum newsroom, welcome to Second Request, the antitrust podcast that explores solutions to monopoly problems. I'm your host, Teddy Downey, and we've got a great episode on Big Pharma today. Our conversation today is with Tahir Amin, who is an attorney with more than 25 years of experience in intellectual property law, and he's the co-founder of IMAC, which seeks to build a more just and equitable medicine system for all by really trying to transform the patent system when it comes to pharmaceuticals. Tahir has taught me so much over the years about how the patent system has become broken, and he's going to offer us his solution for how to fix it. You know, first, I think we've talked in the past, but I think it'd be great to go over again, you know, your background and how you started IMAC and sort of the goals of the organization. That would be, I think, a helpful place to start. Yeah, uh, I, uh, my background is as a practicing intellectual property uh, lawyer. I, I'm from the United Kingdom, so I practiced in the UK, but I also practiced in-house in uh, a few uh, multinational companies representing and looking after their IP assets. And then in 2005, I, well, four actually, I left the private practice and I actually went to India where India was about to uh, become more compliant or compliant with the World Trade Organization rules on intellectual property, uh, which had been um, created in 1995. And India being the home of generic medicine for a lot of people in the global south, uh, the developing countries, uh, uh, particularly on HIV medicines at that time, which was a, an epidemic. Uh, I wanted to kind of use my practice skills to see how I could actually help access to medicines and more affordable medicines. And it was at that time India was passing its laws on a new patent law. I got involved and uh, met my other co-founder, Preeti Krishtel. And we founded IMAC based on challenging patents in India, but also educating people about the patent system, how it works, how it does impact the prices of drugs and availability of drugs, particularly at that time when we were working in the global south. But then in 2016, we were asked to bring this work to the United States. The US was having or was at the beginning of another major drug pricing crisis, particularly around the hepatitis C drugs at that time. I think there was a drug, Savaldi, a new drug that was being charged at $88,000. And so that kind of really kickstarted our work in the United States. And we've really focused our efforts now as an organization largely in the US. I mean, we're very, we're very vocal on what's happening in terms of uh, vaccine equity around the world. We do a lot of work on that. But in terms of uh, drug pricing in the United States, we've done a lot of work around how does the intellectual property system, particularly patents, play into how drug pricing works, how monopolies work, and put out a lot of data to show how pharmaceutical companies are gaming the system, abusing it by filing hundreds of patents in many cases in order to keep competition at bay or delay competition. And that allows them to keep the market for longer and increase prices without any kind of obstruction. So so those, that's the focus of our work. And then now we're moving into a phase of education to help people understand these issues and also put some solutions forward. So we touched on, I think, one aspect of the high level problem that you're looking into, which is pharmaceutical companies, big pharmaceutical companies, gaming the patent system to extend the, a monopoly on a, a certain type of drug. I mean, that, that's effectively what, effectively what a patent is. It's a right to a monopoly for a specific amount of time. And pharma companies get a lot of patents, apply for a lot of patents, and that helps them 
extend the monopoly, keep the monopoly longer effectively. That's one side of it that you just mentioned. The other side is the, is the PTO. And you know we've talked about this in the past as well, but going back to the first time we spoke many years ago, it struck me that you positioned the organization IMAX somewhat like how open markets positions themselves on anti-monopoly issues, but you're focused on patents. Barry Lynn talks about the consumer welfare test as a concept that radically changed antitrust enforcement. You talk about somewhat, I mean, in the past, and I think it's still an issue, the threshold for getting a patent approved. And I want to, I also want to ask about there, there's obviously the application process, which you mentioned, but in terms of getting a patent approved, how has the bar changed historically when it comes to patent approval at the PTO? You know, how has the bar be, been lowered? You know, there's a, there's a really interesting statistic that plays out. I think, you know, in the first sort of 150 years of the US patent system, I think there was some 5 million patents granted. And then in a period of over 30 years, another 6 million patents were granted. Now, I always ask the question, you know, it might sound, come with irony, is, is have we become more inventive or innovative in the last 30 years? Or is it our systems have just made it easier to get patents? And I think uh, it's probably fair to say that the bar has been lowered. I think the innovation economy, which really kicked off in the kind of beginning of the 80s, coming out of the 70s when there was an economic crisis and what have you, there was a need to drive investment. And the language of innovation became the sort of real instrument of modern day capitalism. And that has driven the patent system. Patents are the sort of the vanguard of innovation. And that has basically created this spike in patenting, but also in pharmaceutical patenting. You know, we've seen that double since the 1990s. And I think the bars have been lowered. And, and what's interesting is, and I know this is a bit wonky and inside baseball, but you're talking about giving patents on science that 40 years ago may have been new, but the same standards are being applied today. Nothing's changed. And that, you know, makes me believe that's not real progress. That's just basically, we're just using the patent system as a vehicle for investment, but not invention. And those are two different things. And you mentioned the word invention. You know, I think that used to be, and this is the word, I, I think the way you explained to me last time was patents used to be about giving rights to something that is a new invention, not something that has utility. And so the bar has kind of been lowered to are you approving something just because it works or are you proving something because it's actually a novel invention? Is that a fair way to kind of uh, have a rule of thumb for how the bar has been lowered or how would you describe how the bar has been lowered? That's a really good uh, good way of putting it. I, I always I always like to, you know, language is, a, is an important uh, thing for me in terms of how we have these debates because I think we use things without really sort of reflecting on the language. And the, the difference between invention and innovation, there is a difference. You know, invention is, as you say, something that is genuinely new, hasn't been done before. Innovation is just taking what's, what's already existing and repackaging it or renewing it in a different way. So applying something to a, another drug that has been done before and that just gets repeated and repeated. So I think innovation is, like you say, is more about yeah, getting an end result, but it might not be actually using something, you know, developing something that was uh, in terms of new to get that result, but it just creates a new product. And it's sort of more of the commercialization of existing science or knowledge as opposed to new knowledge. And I think that's a big, that's a difference. But what we're doing is, and that's why I think we have more patents now, is because of this innovation sort of language, we are giving 20 years for things that really aren't new, the same way we would give it to something that is actually inventive and new. In the end, the, the discussion here and the discussion about patents is really about, it's not about whether or not you should have a right to a monopoly for a certain amount of time. If you do something that's actually novel and actually a new invention, 
But it's really about the problem that occurs when people see patents as a way to extend monopoly just to keep extracting rent on the things that they already have rather than going out and and making something new and helping society that way. So this is kind of one of those one areas where no one's actually challenging the concept that you should have a monopoly for a little while on something. It's really about the details of how those incentives are going to work to encourage real invention. And that, that I think that allows us to transition into this blueprint that you put together. You mentioned, you know, you did, you guys read some exhaustive literature or exhaustively read some literature. You inter- you did a lot of interviews and you came up with 10 different problems and 10 different recommendations. And the first category of those is, you know, strengthen the process for challenging wheat patents at the PTO. And I'd love for you to talk to us about the sort of four problems you saw there and the solutions. The first one's related to, you know, the process at the patent trial and appeal board. Can you tell us a little bit about the problem and solution there? Yeah. And so, yes, you know, we kind of came up with a program just to sort of give background to our listeners called the participatory change making process. And it was about bringing together people who don't normally talk to each other. And and there's a lot of that that goes on in at least in the IP space. And the idea was to kind of have these divergent views and, and, and really sort of listen and, and take some ways of, of how we can actually improve the systems. The second blueprint that we put out, the first one was actually about getting more people participating in the patent system. So making it really available as a uh, to broaden the public representation in the system, which is really lacking at the moment. And so the second blueprint really looks at that. How, how can we actually strengthen the institutions such as the PTO and FDA? And the first one is is to look at the patent trial and the appeal board. And, you know, we feel the patent trial and the appeal board, when it was created by the American Invents Act in 2012, we thought it was a great opportunity to kind of clean up the patent system in a way that people could challenge, anybody could challenge a patent either nine months after a patent is is granted under the post-grant review process, or there was the inter-parties review process, which uh, you could challenge, you know, sort of any time after that nine months. And basically... These are two channels that you can challenge a patent. Anybody can do it. They're costly. It's cost prohibitive for somebody who's a, a sort of not a corporation or well-funded. I mean, you know, costs can run up, in, up to a, a sort of 500000 each petition. And what we're proposing, actually, we feel that uh, the, the, the PTAB would be better served if it had just one channel that you can actually make these uh, challenges because the post-grant review, which is you can only be filed within nine months of the patent being granted, has all the grounds available to challenge the validity of the patent. So it could be, you know, whether it's novel, new, whether it was obvious, whether it was being, the document has been written properly to actually sort of say that it actually has grasp of the invention, which is a really key ground. See, this last one, the, the description rule, which is what I've just said, is not available in the IPR process, the inter-parties review. And I think that's why there's probably less success at the inter-parties review, because unless you have all the grounds available to you, you can't really weed out the poor quality patents. What you end up with then is going into court, because that's where you have all the grounds available. So we think we could streamline the PTAB process so that all grounds are available through one process. And that would actually, I think, strengthen the system and to weed out poor quality patterns. So the first is kind of streamline the process at, at this patent trial and appeal board. Then you have another proposal about how the PTO uses discretion to deny challenges. Tell us a little bit about that problem and, and the proposed solution. Yeah. So what's happened since the uh, American Invents Act happened and the PTAB was created, we saw a kind of a surge in the number of challenges that were happening and even including in the pharmaceutical patents. And then around 2016-17, 
we started to see a drop off. And this was largely because there was a lot of lobbying and effort to try and uh, undermine the PTAB. There were various attempts to get it actually basically removed as a body. There was an argument at the Supreme Court to say it was unconstitutional. There's been arguments to say that the judges that sit on the PTAB are unconstitutional. There's been huge efforts to kind of diminish its uh, capacity to sort of deal with challenging patents. It survived. But what's happened in the process is, I think, is that uh, the last director at the patent office started implementing these uh, decisions, which were kind of where they would discretionarily deny anybody who was petitioning through the, uh, the IPR challenge system or the PGR challenge system, which is a post-grant review. Even if a case had legal merit, but if, if there was some other proceeding going on in court, they're saying, no, we're, we're just going to dismiss this. You know, you can't, you can't challenge it through the PTAB. And as a result, we've seen a drop-off, a significant drop-off compared to how the PTAB started out in 2012 in terms of the numbers of challenges. And so the proposal we make is that these discretionary denials should be removed. I mean, if a case has merit, it should be allowed to go forward. And, and I think that's actually what's clogged up the PTAB in terms of its effectiveness. It's um, challenges that are legitimate are not getting to see light of day. And that's what this solution is about, is actually removing this, this discretionary power that the uh, USPTO director has at the moment to be able to not allow certain challenges to go through. In this same category, strengthening uh, the, the process for challenging weak patents, you have a proposal around expediting post-grant patent review. Can you tell us a little bit about that problem and solution? Yeah, so uh, the way the system works is, uh, you know, in order to get a generic drug approved, you have to make sure that you're not infringing certain patents that the originator company, the branded company will list with the FDA. It's called the US FDA Orange Book. And so those kinds of patents are called, they're kind of like the premium patent in any kind of litigation. And if we were to try and remove some of those obstacles, who could try and get a system that could remove those obstacles much quicker? Because, you know, being in court, the branded companies can use all sorts of tactics to delay this litigation. If we had a system where we could get decisions within 12 months, we'd be able to remove these obstacles through patent challenges much quicker or get at least a final decision much quicker. And that's what we're trying to say by things that are actually on the US FDA Orange Book that you have to make sure you're not infringing in order to get generic approval. Those patents should be actually subject to a much more uh, expedited review. Similarly, anything that's listed on the Purple Book relating to biologic drugs, although the Purple Book doesn't really mandate full listings of patents at the moment, but if there are patents on there, they should at least be uh, subject to an expedited review so that we can get decisions much quicker and remove some of the shenanigans and tactics that uh, branded companies play to delay litigation proceedings. The goal, the, the overall goal there is to really make it easier for generic drugs to get through the patent review process so they can come to market. Exactly. Yeah. And then um, last one is kind of the most sort of seems kind of surprising that you can't do this, but it's about uh, searching patents. Tell us a little bit about the problem and solution there. Yeah. So there is a database at the moment that the PTAB runs that you can find decisions relating to any particular case. But I think it would be easier for those of us who are in this world that we could actually search by, for example, you know, the, the key patents on the orange book or the key patents in the purple book and be able to search by the drug name as relating to a case that's happened at the PTAB. And that way, it's a, it's a great way of uh, getting a record of what's going on at the PTAB, what kind of cases, what kind of precedents are being set. It's a very basic uh, solution, but could actually really enhance 
sort of usability and understanding of what's going on at the PTAB vis-a-vis key patterns related to drug products. Is that kind of database available at, with other kind of paid software or is it, so it's like the public site is worse and but you could like pay a lot of money to a private company to do it or is it not exist at all? I believe it does exist in the private space. I think uh, IP dots, I think has it. I last time I looked. Got it. So it's sort of a little bit about sort of leveling the playing field. So, you know, your everyday researcher can actually access it. Can some of these be done by executive order or without with, with rules changes or are they all legislative proposals? It's a mixed bag. Some of them actually, for example, you know, changing the PTAB process, streamlining it would be have to be legislative. That obviously be, then becomes a, a bigger challenge. The second one where we were talking about uh, the discretionary denials, that actually, you know, could be done by the USPTO director. They could change the rulemaking, do some administrative action. But there's also legislative proposals out there at the moment. I believe Senator Leahy with uh, Senator Cornyn, they've got a bill called Restoring the American Invents Act, which tries to remove some of these discretionary denial practices that have emerged in the last four years. So I think it's a mixture of all that. Uh, But certainly the new PTO director, which we're all waiting to hear when it will be announced, has the power to do make some of those changes, and you know, and then and then similarly with the uh, expediting post grant review of key patents, those that would be that could be administratively and also legislative. So it's a it's a mixture of everything. And in terms of kind of the goal here, though, the spirit of a lot of these things could can can be driven forward by the new director. Is there is some ability for the director to put some of these into place when when she takes office. Oh, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I I mean, the the nominee is Kathy Vidal, for anybody who doesn't know. You know, Ms. Vidal has a huge opportunity to really broaden public participation in the patent system, but also look at some of these challenges as it relates to drug pricing. Um, You know, in her confirmation hearing, uh, she was asked some of these questions. And, you know, while her answers were classically of what you would expect of somebody in the Senate hearing, she does recognize some of these issues. The next category you have here is amend the Hatch-Waxman Act to support earlier generic entry. You know, uh, for listeners, Hatch-Waxman is the law that initially set up the system that we have where when a branded drug loses its patent protection or theoretically loses it, generics enter in this kind of litigious process. Uh, We don't need to get into the details right now, but that's sort of the system that we have. Some would say it's a broken system, but it's a system that we have. So your proposal here, your first one is about allowing the FDA to recognize uh, PTAB decisions as legal authority to permit a generic drug to enter the market. Tell us about the, the problems you're seeing there and, and, and what, what you mean with the solution. Yeah, I, we, we, we think this is a really, I mean, nothing's ever simple in politics, but we think this is a really simple and elegant solution. Hatch-Waxman, the act, was this thing that designed the, the way generics were going to enter the market vis-a-vis overcoming any patent barriers. And this was created in 1984. So obviously, the PTAB never existed in 1984. It came about in 2012. When the uh, PTAB was created in the, under the American Invents Act, there was this missed opportunity or somebody wasn't paying attention or it was deliberately not referred to, whatever the reason, that PTAB decisions could be inserted into the language of the Hatch-Waxman saying PTAB decisions would be enough for the FDA to grant uh, market approval to the generic. The way Hatch-Waxman is currently written says only a court can affirm that decision and nothing else. So basically, if I'm a generic, I win you know, various PTAB challenges against the patents listed on the orange book for a drug. I still have to go to court technically 
to get an order to, to give to the FDA to say, look, I've removed all the patent barriers, let me go on to market. But at the moment, the PTAB decisions alone are, are not sufficient to get that clearance. And that, I think, creates additional delay because if I have to go to get a consent order from the court, the branded company is going to then use other tactics to delay it. And so the PTAB decision becomes a kind of, well, pointless exercise, to be honest, because you can't really get the clearance you want. So that's why generics are still going to the court under the paragraph four litigation. So I think in order to enhance the PTAB, if we could get decisions from the PTAB into the Hatch-Waxman law, it would actually uh, help to speed up some of the cases. And we would create a new environment where not everyone's going to court. We can use a PTAB system, which could be much more efficient, much more effective in removing bad quality patents. And that seems like it would be since the Congress passed the, the law to put the PTAB into existence in the first place, it seems like it could get bipartisan support. How is the legislation around this moving at all or is there help for it? Or I think this is the first time we're really trying to push it as a proposal for legislation. I think people in the legal field who practice in these areas have highlighted the, this gap, but no one's really actually proposed the legislation. So we're, we're trying to kind of get it on people's radar and say, look, this is this is a pretty easy solution if we want it to happen. Uh, of course, the industry will say, no, I mean, they've already tried to kill the PTAB in different ways, the pharmaceutical industry. So they, they probably won't be too pleased with this. And then you have another proposal here, same category, designate certain new drug products for faster generic entry. Tell us a little bit about the problem and, and, and that, the solution you've got. Yeah, this one actually is is really that there's sometimes certain therapies or certain needs. I mean, you know, even even with, uh, like, for example, look at, look at what's happened with COVID, where uh, uh, certain things aren't accessible or available. If, they, if we could actually um, uh, have... Uh, uh, certain certain products that are really essential to be that, so that you can actually accelerate the review or challenge the patents on them, uh, such that basically we can get um, uh, things to uh, generic competition in much quicker. Uh, we feel that there's a certain select number of drugs or products that that may meet an emergency need that, that need to have this uh, review process, which can be ex- expedited. Um, and so that's the thinking behind this. It's really kind of these emergency moments where or something's just not available, or it's being cost prohibitive. It's to really kind of make something, certain drugs much more available under an emergency use authorization process. I mean, you would think that a pandemic would sort of uh, put this type of proposal, you know, sort of allow it to gain sort of traction. Are, are things like this, proposals like this, and, and, and other things to sort of solve those emergency uh, issues, you know, are they being considered in Congress or by regulators now? I mean, you'd hope so, just given that we just came out of a pandemic. But I'm wondering if you're seeing any movement on this type of thing. No, I don't think I don't think we're uh, we're seeing anything of this sort. Again, it's it's it's. Uh, I mean, there have been efforts to get the HHS to do other things, such as marching on patents in order to allow others to make them. But uh, here, we're just some, proposing something which is a little different from that, where. You're trying to sort of remove the barriers of patents by designating certain drugs to be under review process in a much more expedited way. Speaking of the marching rights thing, do you advocate for those type of uh, sort of executive actions as well? Or are you involved in the, those fights at all? We certainly monitor them. We certainly speak with colleagues who uh, who do a, more, more of the frontline advocacy on that. And I think there is definitely a place for, particularly where you've got public funding that's gone into a, the products. I mean, we've seen a lot of that in COVID, the billions of dollars that have gone to companies. You know, Moderna is a great example. You know, one of the things that, for example, where public funding is concerned, you know, where the NIH or whatever 
it doesn't really then make that technology available and private actor can then do, do whatever it wants. And, you know, we believe and many others believe that the Bayh-Dole Act, which is what allows the marching rights where public funding is concerned, it could do a lot more. I mean, first of all, we could even have better provisions when you're licensing this technology, government technology to private actors saying that you have to make access provisions much more much more meaningful and that that doesn't happen it's just a, it doesn't really have access at the mind it's all about innovation but not really thinking about actual access and i think our policies need to change like that and you know marching rights tries to do that but it's never been used yeah yeah no i mean you know we we run into this in our reporting a lot where the government doesn't really think through comprehensively its rights to certain data and, and things like that. And uh, it ends up coming back to bite them <laughs> later when someone else is negotiating. Because th th those people don't aren't the ones negotiating the, the price for the product that <laughs> uh, the government's going to buy later. Your third proposal here is related to uh, reforming the Orange Book listing practice so that branded pharmaceutical companies only get one opportunity to list any and all patents that cover their product. Can you tell us a little bit about the problem there and how that solves it? Yeah, I mean, this goes back to the whole litigation games. Uh, at the moment, uh, companies can keep listing new patents onto the Orange Book and then they can be reasserted in litigation, which creates more delay. What we're proposing here is like get your eggs together, so to speak, and then you have to put your cards on the table at once. Don't kind of stagger it out. Don't kind of say, well, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this one or that one. And I think it kind of changes the, the way the litigation system would play out if, if companies were made to list uh, the patents basically at, at, at one time. Because as it happens, you know, all these follow-on patents get listed later on and then you, you're basically still having to be embroiled in litigation, which delays everything. And uh, we think a more stringent listing practice uh, is much needed to resolve some of these litigation tactics. So the basic idea is that the, the pharma company has like, you know, let's say they have 10 patents uh, in mind for a drug. They only go with one at first. And then 19 years later, they put in for another one so that they get longer patent protection or, you know, what? It's not, it's not as dramatic as that. It's like basically I might list four first and then I'll add another three. And then those get reasserted and I have to get certification if I'm a generic against those patents. And so basically what it does, it just drags the process out. And we all know that the Orange Book really is, it's a kind of listing which the FDA doesn't, it only has a ministerial duty to just to, to list them. It doesn't necessarily always check that every patent on there is actually relevant to the product. And this is, the, this is one of the recommendations we make um, later on in the document, which is about the FDA working more closely with the patent office in terms of how uh, patents are understood, both from the FDA level, but also helping the PTO grant better patents as well when it comes to pharmaceuticals. But yeah, it, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely, it's not as staggered as 19 years, but it will definitely increase the period of litigation because, you know, as new patents come on, generic has to clear those hurdles. And I want to move on to this next one uh, momentarily, this uh, collaboration that you're recommending between the PTO and FDA. But first, I wanted to ask about, maybe we could take a minute to talk about the, the way that these pharma companies layer on these patents, because we're wrapping up this section on amending Hatch-Waxman. Most of this stuff, it seems to be legislative. So kind of a tough slog. But in our conversations, it doesn't seem that all everything is about patent approval. And a lot of it is the patent application. It's like this corporate level overwhelming the patent system, right? With applications, not necessarily all on the approval. 
Can you talk about a little bit about, you know, okay, we, we just talked about how they sort of just throw a bunch of patents in the orange book, but how big of a problem is it that the pharma companies, you know, overwhelm the patent system with applications and things like that? I think there's a, you know, interestingly, we, we've just been in correspondence with Senator Tillis. Uh, the question was raised about the data we've put out over the last three or four years showing how companies can actually have dozens or hundreds of patents and patent applications on a drug. I mean, for example, Humira uh, is legendary now. It has, at least by our count, some 257 applications of which around 132 were granted. I mean, that's that's record level. But the, the, the argument that comes back at us is, well, it's only the ones that are listed on the Orange Book that matter, which is not true. Uh, if you've practiced in the field, even patents that don't get listed in the Orange Book, but are applications or because applications that are not listed in the Orange Book, it's only granted patents, but they may eventually get listed in the Orange Book once they become granted. But even applications that are never listed or granted patents that are never listed in the Orange Book, they still act as deterrents. You still have to work around them. If I'm a generic company and I'm looking to launch my generic product, I'm looking at all these patents, all these landmines, as I call them, to see what what am I going to sort of get caught out on? or What what am I going to trip up on? And my R&D, in order to develop my generic version, has to avoid all these patents, irrespective of whether they're listed on the Orange Book, irrespective of whether they're going to be asserted in litigation. So it's become a game of a deterrent. It's like, it's, it's basically, I'm going to get as many patents as I can to make it harder and block off any potential avenue for my generic competitor. And it's interesting, what you asked, at the beginning of our conversation, you asked a question about, you know, the sort of, has the bar been lowered? How we, why do we see more patents? It's interesting when Hatch-Waxman Act came about, when, when I think about it retrospectively, it's kind of the worst system you could ever create. It's like saying you have to clear patents in order to get your drug on the, the market. Well, anybody thinking about it, so, well, let me just get more and more patents. So it makes it harder for the generic to get into the market. And that's exactly what's happened. Companies realized that now that generics could challenge their patents through the Hatch-Waxman system, well, let's just load up the patent system. And that's what's exactly happened. So companies are actually using the patent system as a way, as a defensive mechanism to delay, to block, to do whatever it can to uh, uh, sort of slow down the generic entry. It, it is interesting to see how the industry responded to Hatch-Waxman because a, another thing that comes up a lot, and you know, and I, I've had conversations with uh, folks at the FTC and, and uh, how they review mergers. And, you know, they have this one really sadly pathetic analysis of generic drug markets where they say, well, there, there are five generic companies. So there's this merger is fine. And they really, you know, obviously it's a very complex system to be able to have the resources, expertise, wherewithal to actually go through one of these processes uh, to get generic approval. So there's sort of like, you need a lot of generic companies so that every time something's coming off patent, you have a few people trying to try to make a generic for that and who are able from a technological and a, and a, and a resources and a legal standpoint in some respects to be able to go through and challenge all these patents. And five generic companies is just not going to cut it. I mean, just given how, you know, how, may, how hard these fights are, how many patents there are, how many drugs or, you know, more drugs are out there coming off patent, you really need a very, very robust 
generic market. Uh, so the people who, are, oh, you know, we have five. I mean, that analysis is so, so sad. But anyway, it, it reminds me of how the industry has responded to Hatch Waxman. And you make a good point. I always thought Hatch Waxman was fine because it worked for a while. I mean, it, it's like a system that worked for a little while but then got completely upended by gener- by biologics and by, as you say, this sort of industry response to how the system works. It's convoluted enough that it probably wasn't sustainable as a good system, but it's interesting to think about. I mean, you mentioned biologics. You think about it in the biologic space. Uh, we hear from attorneys representing biologic companies or biosimilar companies, which are the generic versions of biologic drugs. And the litigation there is even more uh, immense. Because in the biologics, because a a biologic or biosimilar drug of a biologic drug is not the exact copy, unlike a small molecule drug like you have under the Hatch-Waxman FDA uh, orange book system. And so with biologics, you you get even more patents because, you know, there's different processes and different ways of manufacturing. And so companies are actually, and some of our studies show this, companies are, are really loading up on the process of manufacturing patents of biologics to block how biosimilars can then come to market. And and the patent thickets in the biologic sector are just they're huge. And uh, many biosimilar companies are saying, you know what, this is way too costly for us to litigate through every patent. And that's why you end up with seeing all these settlements in the biologic space, more than, more than even you know, in the generic space. And I think that's a huge problem because considering biologic drugs make up eight at least of the top 10 selling drugs, I, I believe, at my last count, that's where the market's moved. And, and if we don't get our patent system in order, it's going to be so expensive to get biology drugs. Yeah, no, I mean, having a generic version of a biologic never really made much sense to me, just even how complicated biologics are. And as you say, you can't have an exact chemical kind of copy. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. Hatch-Waxman doesn't really make a ton of sense anymore. But um, let's get on to a topic that actually seems has real near-term potential given what we're seeing out of the Biden administration in terms of this all-of-government approach to competition or executive order. Um, you have a proposal in here on, you know, you know, sort of a category on expanding interagency collaboration, starting with partnership between PTO and FDA. I would suggest throwing the FTC in there. As I mentioned, I'm not impressed particularly with how they do their analysis on these types of mergers, but you can always come back to that. First proposal here is require the FDA to share material submitted as part of the drug approval process with PTO. Walk us through the problem problem there and how this solves that. Yeah. So uh, the as you mentioned, uh, the Biden administration put out a executive order on competition. And one of the, uh, the requests in that was for the FDA to uh, write to the uh, USPTO and ask them about addressing uh, some of the patent abuse problems. And, and the language was pretty pretty firm and direct in terms of recognizing the roles that patents play in drug pricing and uh, availability of drugs. Um, and so here we believe there's a great opportunity for these two agencies, these two uh, institutions which are siloed, but really need to be speaking to each other. Because, for example, as we say in the, uh, the blueprint, uh, when a drug manufacturer makes its new drug application, so this is a branded company, it has to provide certain documentation as part of its drug approval process. And also, it, some of that information is very relevant to how patents get granted. But that information does not travel across to the USPTO. 
when it's making its examination decisions. Now take, for example, there's certain compounds when you're doing a drug in the small molecule space where uh, you, you have what we call different crystalline forms of the active ingredient. And it's a routine experimentation requirement that if a drug substance has these crystalline properties, you have to check for all of them. Now, the problem is the FDA has that information, but over what's happening at the USPTO is that the company is then filing patent applications, different ones for each of those crystalline forms, which technically could block competition or block alternative forms from generics. But this is routine stuff. You know, this is stuff that you have to do for the FDA. Why do you get a patent for that? And so, you know, s- simple things like that. And there are probably other ways in the drug development process that the FDA has information that could really help examination at the PTO level. But that, that crossover is not happening. And that's what we're trying to propose here is information sharing that could really help. Now, one of the obstacles there will be trade secrets. Uh, people will say, well, the information I provide, the companies will say, well, the information I provide the FDA is trade secrets. Well, there could be a memo between memorandum of understanding between the FDA and the PTO to say that this information is confidential between us, but as long as it helps uh, examination, that's the main purpose. And I don't see why we can't do that. Is there any legitimacy to that argument in that PTO has to like make all its data public or uh, is foyable or is that, would that be seem uh, easily solved with that a memo or you redacted if someone tries to FOIA it? Just like any other agency. Yeah, they could redact it. I mean, there could be a special provision for that to say that, you know, when you go on to what we call pairs, which is the examination prosecution history, if there are certain documentations that they've used in examination that fall under this kind of exchange that we're talking about between the FDA, which which can't be shown publicly because of trade secrets. Although I have qualms with the trade secret laws as well. I think they're overused and particularly in court proceedings as well. The way courts seal documents in litigation proceedings between companies and keep them out of the purview of the public eye, I think that needs to change too. So I would actually, I, I don't think, I, I don't think these things should be trade secrets, but I think it gives too much power to the corporations to get away with things that they shouldn't. But even if we were to play fair on the terms that they would agree with, I think you could actually, yeah, you could certainly redact those out. Uh, so you can't see them on the, you know, prosecution history database. And uh, that seems like a pretty low-hanging fruit here um and you know the pto does that already you can't download copyrighted material from the ptab database and let's move on the 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 next one here allow the pto to solicit and utilize fda input i mean it's sort of similar to the the earlier one um tell us a little bit about the problem here and 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 how this solves it yeah this one is is kind of related to the first one that we're just talking about it's really when there's examination or uh uh, whether it be in PTAB proceedings or in, uh, in, in applications, is uh, having the FDA involved and, 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 and giving some kind of input in the, in the um, examination, particularly of Orange Book and Purple Book patents, you know, things that are really going to end up in litigation, just so that we can strengthen the systems of how patents are granted in the first place. What we have is a system now where everything gets decided by litigation, and that allows for greater settlements and pay for delay tactics or other delay tactics. Uh, which uh, benefit both generic biosimilar companies and the branded companies, when really our institutions like the FDA and the PTO should be kind of weeding those things out from the off. And I think that's what this proposal is trying to get at, is improving the quality of patents based on information that the FDA may have that it could share with the PTO, particularly where it concerns these key patents that end up in litigation. And then this last one, require consultation between the PTO and FDA on patent term extension processes. 
Can you uh, walk us through the problem uh, that you see there? This is, again, one of those transparency problems as well, where um, branded companies can actually seek a patent term extensions on their drugs, on their active ingredients. And these, these extensions can really change the entry date of a generic product. Now, we've had groups, Prep for All, which is a group that represents a, a lot of HIV patients, but does great work in other areas of patents and drug access. You know, they tried to actually file a petition concerning a patent term extension on a HIV drug. But, you know, the information wasn't readily available. And what was even worse was the PTO just rejected their petition. And I think uh, we need a more transparent and more accessible system that we can actually uh, look at how these extension requests are being made. Because many of them actually, if you put them under scrutiny, are uh, uh, sort of uh, ways that companies just try to get extra years of protection on a product that should be going off patent. What's a good example of this? Is this like, you know, for, for, for the layperson, is this like when, uh, you know, like an allergy drug or something, like they make it like a 24 hour, they, it goes from like Claritin to Claritin D or Claritin to 24, you know, some, I mean, give us a good example of something in our everyday life where it should have come off patent and then it got another extension. So this actually is a different to this kind of uh, the follow on patenting extensions. This is a different, this is where... You've already, you've already got the patent, but you know there was a delay in between the patent office or the FDA approving that drug, and so you get this patent term extension back. It's, it's basically a way of compensating the uh, the branded company for a delay in the agency and approving their drug or the patent office, you know, examining the patent. And so basically, these extension terms, are, you know, they they could be anyway up to five years. It's a way of compensating back time lost at the agency level because while a patent is not being granted. Uh, you can't really enforce it. Or while a drug's not approved, you can't really sort of, you know, the patent loses time in relation to that drug. So it's a way of kind of giving back some time for, that they could then, that they lost because of these federal agencies uh, trying to sort of sort out the, the approval and the patent. Got it. So they need to figure out, all right, which ones are legitimately lost time or, you know. Yeah, exactly. So these, these, these you know, so you apply for an extension and, uh, and the, the PTO and the FDA will say, yeah, you know, will give you this amount of time back because, you know, it was because of this delay. Well, g given all the ways that they can keep their patent longer, it seems a little rich that they go back and ask for more more time up front. But uh, for, the, for the... Yeah, one year could be billions of dollars. I suppose uh, it's a good strategy if they give them the extensions. Last thing I wanted to ask, you know, lots of problems, lots of solutions. I love learning about this stuff. There is a one thing that has been is kind of uh, near the top of the list. It, it, when the FCC moves ahead with their competition rulemaking, which uh, you know everyone expects them to do, although there'll be a court fight about that. But one of the items at the top of the list is a ban on pay for delay settlements, and I was wondering how big a problem those still are. We we talked discussed them briefly earlier. And how big of a deal it would be if those were banned just outright rather than sort of having to go to court with the Supreme Court saying, you know, sometimes they're okay. In your world, how big of a deal would that be? I think it would be huge because it takes some of the, um, the wind out of the sails of some of these patent strategies. I mean, after all, in my opinion, settlements happen because of all the patents that get stacked up. I mean, I'm going to use the Abdi case, but there are many other cases. The Abdi case with Humira. I think nine biosimilar companies ended up settling because they just couldn't work their way through the patent thicket. And worst of all, they're going to pay royalties back to AbbVie because of all the patents that they had uh, in order to kind of come to market in 2023. 
So, you know, the classic pay for delay cases are where someone pays, a, a branded company pays a generic company or a biosimilar company to stay off the market. I think we're seeing less and less of those now because since that Supreme Court decision in 2013-14, branded companies have kind of woken up to like, oh, we may be walking a fine line here and get caught out by the FTC or whoever. And so uh, they don't do that so readily now. I think now there are different ways of doing these settlement agreements. And I think if we could have a legislation that really just cuts this out completely as anti-competitive, whatever the way, whether you're paying royalties back because someone's got patents, I mean, that makes it a bit harder because in a way people say, well, hold on, I've got a legitimate patent. And if someone wants to pay me royalties to get onto the market, that's what's wrong with that? I think that's more of a patent system problem. But if we could have legislation that sort of really put some pressure points on these kinds of settlement agreements, all types, regardless of whether someone's paying you or regardless of whether it's kind of say, I'm going to give you the European market, but I'm going to keep the US market, which is what happened with Abdi and Humira. I think those kind of things should be anti-competitive and cut out as terms of settlements. Yeah, no, it'll be interesting. I mean, I know that th- that seems like a big fight. I know they have some new personnel over the FTC, so maybe maybe we'll see some changes in their their rulemaking on this as well. I think what will be interesting is the FTC now has a rule, has the power now to review settlement agreements in the biologics. It didn't really have that until last year, so it'll be interesting to see what kind of things they learn from how settlement agreements are done in the biologic space. Because I think they'll be very different to what we've seen in the generics space in the classic pay for delay. And I, I guess I do have one last question. Why didn't you include the FTC or any other agencies in this PTO and FDA? Just because those are the two most important. It's not to say that there shouldn't be conversations across other agencies. Oh, no, I, I think the FTC has a huge role to play. And I think we were just focused really because of the executive order. Uh, we were focused on let's 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 get the FDA and PTO talking to each other first. But I do think that uh, you know connecting the FTC, making this triangle is important because the FTC. I I think personally the antitrust laws are far too weak uh, to deal with the way IP systems work at the moment, the patent system. Um, but I do believe that they all three need to be speaking to each other because uh, it's far too siloed. Well, as always, uh, just absolute pleasure to talk to you, learn about this. I, you know, it's, uh, it's so intertwined with competition, but at the same time, I know so little about it. So it's, it's always interesting to learn and it's always great to talk to you. And thanks so much for uh, taking the time today to, to walk us through this new plan and, and to speak with our, our listeners. Absolutely. No, a pleasure being on and thanks for uh, covering our blueprint. Yeah. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Second Request. Second Request is powered by the Capital Forum. For more information, connect with us at thecapitalforum.com or follow us on Twitter at capital underscore forum.